0: Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for Grace Fellowship Church. How can a good God allow evil in the world? One of the most important things for us to understand about God is that He is God. And because God is God, that means he can do whatever he wants and he doesn't play by our rules. God doesn't submit to any human committees. Few places in the Bible show this as well as the book of Job. We're almost finished with our series in this book. This week we're going to take a look at the final poetic speech in the book, starting at chapter 40 and verse 6. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 285. After this, don't worry, we're home free. The poetry is almost at an end. We will have gloriously straightforward narrative from here on out in this book. Some things you must know if you're new or if you're visiting. That In chapter 1 of this book of Job, Satan the prince of the power of the air, wants to cause some mischief. And so God asks Satan to consider Job, God's servant, because there is none like Job on the earth. And God permits Satan to destroy Job's property and his livelihood and his servants and even his ten children. In chapter 2, even those things aren't enough. Satan wants to go farther. He wants to harm and destroy and devour. So God permits Satan to ravage Job's flesh. And he says, you may not kill him, but you may otherwise have your way with him. We've now been through 37 chapters of discussion about these events. Discussion as Job and his friends try to figure out why would God do this to him? Why would Job, a blameless and upright man, have to suffer such extreme things? How should Job understand the purpose of his suffering? How could he trust a God who would let this happen? And what are we as readers to understand about God's character as a result of these events? God has already spoken once to Job. Tom walked us through God's first speech last week where God appears in a hurricane and he challenges both Job's knowledge and his power. God proves that Job has no knowledge of God's ways, not enough. Job's knowledge is insufficient and it's inconsequential. And God also proved that Job has no power to accuse God or to change what God has decided. Job answered God in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, and he basically said, Okay, God, I get the picture. I am very small and I will shut up now. I will no longer accuse God. I will not sit in judgment over you. I get the point. I'm less than nothing, and I'm backing away from this conversation. But God speaks to Job again, and God refuses to play fair. God doesn't say, Job, I'm glad you finally see your place. God does not say, Job, that is a wise choice for you to stop criticizing me. No, the text says in verse 6 of chapter 40, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. In other words, God says, Oh, no, you don't, Job. I'm not done with you yet. At the end of God's first speech, Job had lowered himself, but he never exalted God. He says nothing about God in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 40. So God must teach him another lesson, not only to stop justifying himself, but he also needs to learn now to justify God instead. And the first speech of God listed many of the mightiest creatures of the wild in order to show Job his weakness and his insignificance. Now in this second speech, God must expand his range of examples. God in this speech will cover not only the natural order, but the supernatural order, not just The savage, wild, but God will deal with the very problem of evil in the world. He'll deal with the question of how can innocent people suffer? And it's all wrapped up in the question of how can a good God allow evil in the world? So what God will do in this second speech is bring out the biggest, baddest evil in the universe in order to show Job and us that God follows the rules of nobody but himself. You'll see in your outline that we'll talk about how God taunts all who would criticize him. God toys with the problem of evil, and God expects the wise to whimper at his fearsome majesty. Let us pray and ask the Lord's help to understand this passage. Father in heaven, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit... Now, and help us to see how bad evil really is, so that we would fear you alone who have the power to stop it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, God taunts all who would criticize Him. Job chapter 40, starting now at verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together bind their faces in the world below, then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God deals with a few issues here in his introduction to the speech. First in verse 8 is the first issue, which is the question of who is right. Job has consistently claimed that he is right and God is wrong. And God can't answer or address this question, will you put me in the wrong or condemn me that you may be in the right? He can't address that without tackling a second issue, which is in verse 9, which is who is in charge? Have you an arm like God? And this question of who is in charge, it's bigger than a question of who is right and who is wrong. It's a question about who defines what is right and what is wrong and who is able to do something about that which is wrong. In verses 10 through 14, God expands in this second issue. God dares Job to try taking God's place. Verse 10, I dare you, Job, to look in your closet or look in your dresser to find majesty, dignity, glory, or splendor and wear it to work tomorrow. Verse 11, he says, Job, you have been so angry about what has happened to you. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Your suffering is very wrong and it's terribly evil and you've been surrounded by proud people trying to explain it to you. But, verses 12 and 13, God says, Job, can you do anything other than be angry about it? In other words, can you look on the proud and bring them low and tread down the wicked and hide them in the dust and bind their faces in hell? can you judge the wicked and send them to hell? We must take note of this setup or else we'll miss the point of the rest of the speech. Because in verse 15, God begins a description of a creature named Behemoth and chapter 41 is all about a creature named Leviathan. And there's been a lot of debate in church history over the identity of these two creatures. Some English translations even footnote them as a hippopotamus and a crocodile. As a a child, I was taught that they were dinosaurs. Both of these identifications are beside the point. Because God is asking Job in this speech, if he cannot merely get angry about his suffering, but if he can actually bring it to an end. Can you judge the wicked? Can you hide them, bring them low, and bind their faces in the world below? Can you judge wrongdoers and send them to hell? Verse 14. Because if you can, Job, then I will acknowledge that your own right hand can save you. In other words, God says, Job, if you can bring an end to evil and suffering in the world, then I will admit defeat. I will give up my job and hand it over to you. And I'll trust in you to set everything right that has gone wrong in the world. I'll bow before your superior wisdom and power to accuse me of doing something wrong. But if you can't bring evil to an end, then trust in me to do it for you. Friends, do you complain about things you have no power to fix? That's what Job does. And let's see how Job, how God, responds to that. Behemoth and Leviathan in the rest of this speech are two case studies in Job's ability to bring evil to an end. And if they are merely the hippopotamus and the crocodile, or even if they're dinosaurs, the point of this speech would be anticlimactic because God already made the point in the first speech that Job has no power over any ferocious, wild creature on earth. In this speech, God uses these two creatures, these legendary creatures of evil, behemoth and leviathan. He uses them to embody the suffering that Job has been through. He uses them to picture the wiles of Satan who attacked Job with gnashing teeth and spiky claws and fiery breath. And if Job can stop that, he can do anything. Job has accused God of doing wrong, and now God dares Job. God taunts him into doing something about it. As a part of his taunt, God explores the problem of evil. This is the second point on your outline. The problem of evil is the term that we put on the philosophical question of the origin and existence of evil. The problem of evil simply stated is this. How can there be a God who is both all good and all powerful when there is so much evil and suffering in the world? Because if God were all powerful, he would be able to stop evil, and if he were all good, he would want to stop evil. But since evil is still here, there must not be a God, or at least not a God who is all powerful and all good. God is God, however. And he doesn't bow to our expectations or to our formulations. God will take these questions that Job has had and he will not answer them philosophically with careful argumentation. Instead, he answers them in a way guaranteed to capture our hearts. God answers these questions in a way that makes us wince and makes our mouths run dry. He doesn't just tell us about evil in the world. He shows us evil in all of its awesome ferocity. Let's start with mighty behemoth, verse 15. Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Let me make a few very quick, but very clear points from this text. First, in verses 16 to 18, we see that behemoth is mighty. God describes his body to show us that he is mighty. Second, in verses 20 through 23, behemoth appears tame. The mountain yields its food. All the wild beasts are playing. Everybody's having a great time. He's just lazing about under the lotus plants looking for shade. And even if the river runs over, it's turbulent. He's not worried about it. It's a very pastoral, tame picture with the lutes playing in the background. He appears tame. However, verse 24, behemoth is not actually tame. Go ahead. Try to pierce his eyes. Try to stick his nose with a snare. So behemoth is mighty. Behemoth appears tame. Behemoth is not actually tame. But finally, as big as behemoth is, God is bigger. Verse 15, God made him as he made Job. Verse 19, he is the first of the works of God. In other words, he's not not first in time, the first thing to have been made, but the first in power and supremacy. He's the biggest and the baddest of God's works. And only the one who made him can approach him with a sword to tame him, to control him, or to put an end to his foul deeds. The point is this, Job, if you are so great, go ahead and try to take him out. And brothers and sisters, this passage does not fit what I would like to think about God. See, I would like to think that God would have nothing to do with evil. I like to think that God would never allow evil to exist or continue to reign. I would like to think that God would not ever see evil as something to use or to employ in the lives of his people for their growth in fear and worship. But this chapter, it it actually says not much more poetically than what chapters 1 and 2 already said narratively, which is that Satan acts only with God's permission and at God's behest. This does not mean that God does evil or God causes evil, but God rules over evil. I want to say that God has nothing to do with evil, but the book of Job says that Satan came into his presence. I want to say that God always protects and defends his people against evil, but the book of Job says that God is the one who drew Satan's attention to Job and asked Job Ask Satan to consider Job as his next victim. I want to say that Satan is pathetic and impotent on earth, but Job says that although Behemoth appears tame and carefree, he is out to devour, and humans cannot even pierce his nose with a snare. I want to say that God always stops Satan from doing harm. But the book of Job says that God occasionally gives him permission to ravage and destroy. And in the end, God suggests that Job can do nothing about it. He can do nothing about his suffering, but God can. Now, please remember, in other places in the Bible, God reveals his complete goodness. For example, Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But this passage focuses on God's sheer power over evil. And as you consider these things, who are you more afraid of? Satan running rampant or God telling Satan where to go next? You see, God will not play fair. God will not bow to your expectations. God will shake up what you thought to be true about right and wrong. And God reserves the right to be God. Surely it can't get any worse than this. But let's see what he has to say about Leviathan. Let's meet Leviathan in chapter 42. Leviathan cannot be defeated, and Leviathan will not play nice, especially when it comes to innocent bystanders or helpless children. Hear God's word. Job 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you in soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You won't do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I need some help with this part. Emma, can you please help me? Susan and Milana. Come on up front here. Ladies. Leviathan will not play nice. Can you stand up here, please? Right here. So everyone can get... A good look at your sweet smiling faces. Everybody, please picture these. These look at these sweet young ladies in our church. These nice girls, and picture them, they want to get together one day, okay? And they they put their hair in pigtails and they're wearing overalls rolled up to their knees, and they get some fishing rods and go out and sit on the end of a pier. And their legs are dangling over the side, and it's a calm and wonderful day. And then there's a little splashing. And there's some giggling. Do you know how to giggle? Doing a giggle? Okay. You don't have to perform. I told them they didn't have to do anything. Just stand there. <laughs> but you picture them sitting there and having a great time and there's some splashing and then, and then there's a, a rushing sound of water and What's going on? And and there's some scary music in the background, of course. And, And then all of a sudden, as they're sitting there with their fishing rods and their tackle boxes and their toys and whatever they have, there is this giant sea serpent that jumps up out of the sea and it hangs there for a minute with its fangs. And they're sitting there and they don't know what to do and it just comes down and swallows them up. And it explodes in dust and splinters and when the cloud settles, There's nothing left. That's what's going on in this passage. Thank you, girls. (laughs) You can't play with this sea serpent. That's what Leviathan is. You can't put him on a leash for your girls. You can't bargain with him. You can't speak soft words to him. Verses 6 and 7, you will never see him on ice in the fish market because nobody can catch him to kill him, to sell him. Verses 8 and 9, if you cross paths with Leviathan, you'll have nightmares for the rest of your life. The merest sight of him crushes your spirit and empties your bowels. This is not a comforting pastoral picture. It is a little funny. It's meant to be, but it's a dark humor. This is a horror flick of the worst sort. Leviathan will not play nice. But the second thing, God will not cover up the fact that Leviathan cannot be defeated. Look at verse 12. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength, or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes his breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear the dart or the javelin, he counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp, sharp sherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Leviathan cannot be defeated. In verses 12 through 17, God describes his invulnerable armor. In verses 18 to 21, he breathes fire. Verses 22 to 30, he has impenetrable defenses. There is no spot of vulnerability underneath, on his belly or anywhere. In verses 31 to 34, he is He has incredible, fearless, unmatched ferocity such that he looks down on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Nobody is higher than he. Nobody can defeat him. Do you see why this is no mere crocodile? This is a cosmically destructive beast. This is the unstoppable enemy of all that is good and holy. This is a ferocious, selfish independent, dangerous reptile. And not just a snake or a lizard. This is a dragon. And when I say dragon, I'm not talking about Puff the Magic Dragon or how to train your dragon. I'm talking about Grendel and Grendel's mother and Jabberwock and Harry Potter's basilisk all rolled up into one. I'm talking about Smog, the Terrible who flies off at the end of the second Hobbit movie and he says, I am fire. I am death. And the screen goes black. This thing is out to get you and you can't stop it. And we are like Bilbo watching this thing that we have roused and saying, what have we done? And God's speech just Ends there. There is no conclusion. There is no promise. There's no offer to help. There's not even a real question for Job after verse 14 when he says, who can open the doors of his face? All we have by way of divine reflection on this beast is in verses 10 and 11 where God says, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. In other words, you must know how terrible and ferocious this Leviathan is, but you also must know how much more terrible and ferocious your God is. God is not trying to pick Job up and dust him off with this speech. God is not trying to tell him that it will all be okay in the end. And God is not trying to avoid hurting Job's feelings or making his pain any worse. God wants Job to fear him. And the best way to do that is to show Job how terrible the worst terror could ever be and then draw a bleak comparison to himself, Verse 11 is just critical to this speech. Because in Romans chapter 11, when the Apostle Paul runs out of words to describe both the boundless kindness and the unyielding severity of God, And Paul pushes his rhetorical ability to the absolute limit, exploring both God's eternal election and humanity's stubborn and stumbling choices. And when he goes as far as he possibly can and he goes no farther, he quotes verse 11 from Job chapter 41. Paul quotes this verse from this speech about Leviathan. And after he quotes this verse, Paul's conclusion is this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And friends, in the face of such power and glorious ferocity, what can we do? We must learn to fear this God or we will never learn to trust him when it really counts. And so, we move to the last part of this passage. God expects the wise to whimper at his fearsome majesty. We can get three applications from Job's final response to this unbelievable God. First, You can't stop God. Chapter 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Friends, God is God, and He will do whatever He wants. You can't stop Him. Second, you can't understand your suffering. Verse three. He begins by quoting God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? End quote. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You see, friends, God may never stoop down to answer your shouts of Why is this happening to me? You may never see a good reason for your particular suffering. And you might feel attacked, accused, chewed up, and spit out. But you can't ultimately understand your suffering. God is God. Third application. There is a time to despise yourself. Verse 4, again he quotes God, Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. End quote. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Friends, we cannot sit in judgment over God We can listen to him, but we can't tell him what to do. He can make you squeal like you have never squealed before. And he can leave you a whimpering wreck of self-loathing if that's what it takes to teach you to fear him. And when you see bitterness and anger in your heart, and complaining and accusation against God, it is fully appropriate for you to hate what you have become. It is appropriate for you to turn around and find thanksgiving and blessing for God instead, because God does not play fair. God will go to great length to show you his glory by showing you that you can't stop suffering and evil in the world. And this is not fair because we think he should play by our rules. We think he should terminate the pain and make everything right. But, you see, God taunts all who would criticize him, and God toys with our alleged problem of evil, and God expects the wise to whimper at this fearsome majesty. Now why would we trust this God? Because right when the world almost gave up hope and some thought that their suffering and the evil in the world would never come to an end, God once again broke all the rules and he showed that nobody could stop him. He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. This God whom we thought couldn't ever be tainted by evil, He took on flesh and He took on our sin. He who knew no sin became sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, He pierced behemoths underbelly. He severed Leviathan's head. And he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to take his throne where he now rules over all power and authority until the day when he will bring a final end to all pain and suffering and evil. He will gather it all up and he will throw it into a fiery lake that burns forever. And there will be no more tears and there will be no more death and there will be no more mourning nor crying nor pain. And it's not fair that we should get to enjoy eternal life with this almighty God. It's not fair that we should have our sins forgiven. It's not fair that we can merely believe in Christ and have the slate wiped clean. It's not fair that we should be counted as his precious sons and daughters. But you see, God will never play fair. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you... Our almighty, you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Help us, Lord, to fear you who alone can bring an end to our suffering. To fear you who entered our world to rescue us and make us your children. You who will defend us to the end though at times it may not look like it. Please help us to fear you and to trust in you so that when life goes haywire, we have some foundation upon which to rest our hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Please come quickly. Amen.